everyone and welcome to episode 119 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I'll be your host today as always. Now today's episode is going to be about a conference, a conference that I co-organised um, that was last week. That's if you're listening in September 2023 um, because that's when it was uh, and I just wanted to talk about it today. Talk about uh, what it was about, what our intentions were, uh, deciding to put on a conference of black British history, uh, what it was like, things I learned, uh, and as we move forward into this treacherous time period that we know to be Black History Month, which is literally in a few days' time, you know, I always have a lot to say about Black History Month, but I thought I'd close off this episode with some thoughts following on from uh, this conference, which was called, or titled, The Issue of Truth, Representing Black British History. And it was a two-day conference um, organised by myself uh, and a fellow PhD student and friend, Olivia Wyatt. Um, And it was at the Institute of Historical Research, uh, which is in Senate House Library, um, if you are familiar with the London library scene, as I have found myself very familiar with over the last uh, decade. Decade? Yeah. Wow, I've been in higher education for like nearly a decade. Nine years. That's a long time. Um... Wow. Wow. Now, I haven't actually been to that many conferences, especially like the longer two, three, four day conferences, um, because especially not in person, um, because I started my master's in 2019, which is kind of the time that you start thinking about conferences and the like. Um, And it obviously went into 2020 and there was a pandemic and any conferences that were planned were cancelled. And then in 2021 and even in 2022, a lot of conferences were still online. And it's kind of only, well, my first year of my PhD, which is last year, that I've started to kind of go to more in-person conferences and kind of see what they're all about. And for anyone that's like not in academia, um, which is most of you that listen to this podcast, or so I'd like to think anyway, um, conferences, especially in the historical sense and in the academic sense, tend to be made up of uh, panels. And each panel can have anywhere from like, I don't know, two to four people, sometimes more. Um, And it will be roughly brought together by a certain theme, whether that be a time period or a geographical location or someone specific um, or, yeah, a theme or something like that. And those panels will be chaired by somebody uh, who kind of introduces each person and the paper that they give. And a paper is essentially, I think of them as like the podcast episodes I do, like solo episodes, because you essentially are just talking for about, not as long as I talk for maybe on the podcast, um, but you are speaking for about 15 to 20 minutes. Sometimes conferences have shorter papers, um, so they'll be like 10 minutes, um, sometimes they're longer. Um, and at this conference, they were all 15 minutes and most panels had about three to four people on them. Um, and we were talking about and thinking about ideas of truth within histories of black people in Britain, because I think especially within public history um and I tend to I guess I toe the line a little bit doing a podcast and doing a PhD with public history um sometimes um histories of black people in Britain often see themselves kind of falling into these generalizations um and oversimplifications of historical events or moments or organizations and groups and I'm sure that there are even things I've said on this podcast in the past, uh, or even more recently, who knows, that 
kind of play into those generalizations. Generalizations like hmm, Windrush, shall we say. Um, let's take the Windrush narrative. Windrush, in some ways, being a problematic term in itself. Um, it was the name of a ship. Is it the best word to represent essentially a whole generation of people that migrated over 30 or so years? Is the time period that they're given, 1948, and kind of ending around 19... I think it's either 63 or 71. I think it's 71. Um, is that a problematic time period? Does this generalise this whole generation of people into this kind of Windrush symbolism of ex-service men coming to Britain from the Caribbean, and if you want to generalise it even more from Jamaica, which people often say instead of the Caribbean? Um, and this narrative, it removes truth. It removes some of the nuances and it removes the complexities of the wider narrative. And history tends to use broad brushstrokes when it comes to public history. And it's not always helpful. And whilst these weren't necessarily the thoughts we had when we were thinking about doing this conference, um, knowing it would be somewhat an academic endeavour, um, but we wanted to think about the fact that doing Black British history means a study of minorities, minoritized people uh, in this country, um, in also a transnational context. So thinking about them coming from other countries, whether that be Africa, the Caribbean or Asia, potentially, um, and how, you know, we think about these people when we are already in a society and in a space where said people, black people, are still somewhat minoritized and marginalized in society today. Um, and some of the kind of questions we decided we wanted to to throw at the audience and throw at the panellists that would be speaking is to think about, you know, whose truth is being heard and whose is being forgotten whilst we hear those truths that are super loud. You know, how can we change this idea that certain truths are more credible than others, they're more palatable, they're more acceptable in the, in the mainstream? Um, and how do we then depict all the different threads within Black British history and all the truths that... Um, are are about and maybe exist but haven't been uncovered yet and haven't been researched as well as these really big overarching narratives um as well as that we wanted to think about the ways in which we could actually uh reflect the diversity of opinions because black people are not homogenous um neither are those that do black british history in their views and also whether that be you know in academia as activists um, within public history, within podcasting and documentary making, you know, there are so many different angles at which to come at these his histories. And so how do we then um, encourage there to be a diversity of thought within um, these fields and within these stories, um, especially when, you know, we still want to put out a somewhat united front to move forwards um, and push you know, for the further uh, work within within these spaces and within these histories. Um, and we also thought a lot about where we get this historical information from. We talked about oral histories and interviewing people and archives and, you know, scholars doing the work. And there were so many um, academics and lecturers and scholars and um, public historians and curators in the room that were part of the conversations that we were having. And it was incredible to be around so many people that also had an interest and a care and a passion for history um it made me feel less isolated and I don't feel as isolated in my work 
as I have done in the past anymore and that is actually because I'm part of a few groups um, of you know like-minded PhD students doing similar work and we work together and we talk through our work and even though you know I would say for most of us um, and that is uh, black people, black students studying black British history uh, at UK universities. We tend to be alone. Maybe there's one or two other people um, that do similar work to us. So it can be quite an isolating experience. But coming together in conferences um, like the one we had was very nice because it kind of is a reminder that actually there are loads of people that are doing similar work to you. There are loads of people that are interested in things you're interested in and they all feel a similar way about the work that they're doing and the lack of or perceived lack of other people doing it with them. Now, I didn't want to go through the whole conference panel by panel um, because I just feel like it doesn't interest anybody. But um, I will start with the first panel, which was on um, early modern Black Britain. And in a conversation I had after, I realised, well, I didn't realise just at that moment, but I have always known, but it was brought to my attention um, that... The early modern period is not a period I cover very much on this podcast, and that is because um, I'm not going to say I don't know what's going on, but I don't know what's going on um, back then. <laughs> I stick uh, very comfortably in the 20th century. Um, any work I do, or any, there have been episodes I think that fit into the early modern period off the top of my head. I'm thinking I did an episode on Fanny Eaton. Maybe that's not even the early modern period. It probably isn't, you know. I can't remember the dates of that at all. Um, But yeah, just thinking about kind of that time and just generally the earlier presence of black people in Britain, the work that the scholars that work on that period have to do is just so different to the work that we do in the 20th century. Um, And this obviously, you know, is different for those that work on the 19th and the 18th. But this early modern period, well, that fits into the early modern period. um, You don't have and obviously this is me literally stating the most obvious thing ever but they they don't have any sources that are alive nobody is still living like I do in the 20th century I can do oral histories um they could potentially use conversations or interviews that have happened in the past if they have been properly archived but then it's the thing of you know this is hundreds of years worth of material um that's sorry hundreds of years old that would have to have been stored and archived and looked after properly um, for them to be able to do um, work on it. And uh, we were speaking about the case of um, some pieces of artwork uh, that were found um, by Tara Monroe, actually at Leicester, I think it's Leicester Art Gallery, Leicester Museum and Art Gallery. Um, and they were found and they were in really bad condition. They were basically saved from being thrown away. And it's not the first time I've heard about archival documentary photograph material about to be thrown away literally saved from the skip that is key for mapping out these black histories I think there was another case in Leicester with more recent histories um from a community center that was around in like the mid 20th century the mid 1900s and it was about to go in the bin and oh the names are failing me and I'm so sorry because I really do like to reference the people I'm referring to um but this lady saved it essentially and it is now um, being archived and it's in the process of being archived in Leicester and this is a conversation that um, was spoken about at the Society for Caribbean Studies um, conference this summer in July Um, and so there's a lot of things uh, that 
they have to rely on in this period and and they might be pieces of art you know newspaper clippings records personal records diary entries whatever else um but you've got to yeah kind of hope and pray that things have been stored correctly and whilst we have to do the same in the 20th century or any kind of history time period or country or whatever you're looking at in the past you have to kind of rely on the fact that this has been kept properly so that you can actually access it and use it to its fullest form but it's even more difficult when this this these things are from hundreds of years ago um and it just kind of made me think about kind of methods and the way we work and the way we do these histories especially where you're essentially and a lot of the work that some of the scholars are doing in the early modern period is actually tracking a black presence and kind of pinpointing people to different places and actually moving beyond this idea that they would have been enslaved or in servitude. Um, but looking at those that maybe migrated or were born in this country, um, but by their own kind of choosing or moving because of trade or um, other patterns at the time um, that were causing migrations. And there was some really interesting and amazing work um, done by um, a few scholars that I really hope will come on the podcast in the next coming months and weeks because essentially I can't go and research the early modern period to the level in which I would be comfortable to then talk about it on the podcast so why not invite the people that do this work to come and talk about their work it just makes more sense doesn't it um that is that is part of the plan and um that was one of the beautiful things about the conference there were just so many people doing things that I know would be of interest to this podcast and I'm in the process of inviting them all. Naturally as you'd expect for a conference on black British history or even a conversation on black British history we got into a lot of themes whether they were you know politics, activism, um, the work of community groups, family, relationships, archives, all that kind of stuff um, but one of the conversations that I was really looking forward to and that I was really happy to have witnessed and happy that we kind of organised in a way that was part of the conference was a conversation between Zainab Abbas, um, who was um, an activist and uh, from the uh, Black Liberation Front. She was also in the Brixton Black Women's Group. Um, and that they're, they're just like the headlines. There's like a long list um, of other organisations and groups that Zainab was a part of um, and work that she did and her work was transnational. She uh, was in Dar es Salaam at different parts of her career and activism uh, all over the world um, and this was in conversation with A.S. Francis who has been a guest on this podcast uh, before um, and has a book coming out on Girl in Bean who was an activist in the 70s and 80s and the term activist was a term that we debated and a contentious term um, as we had a panel of that we called scholar activists um, of Professor Hakeem Adi, uh, who's been on the podcast twice before, uh, Dr. Alima Gray and Jade Bentall. And they brilliantly kind of broke down that term and why it's kind of maybe uh, a misused term or a kind of a lazy term to potentially describe anyone that does black histories and I say that without the British um more broadly because it seems like if you're doing a marginalized history um you know you're an activist and that's just a paraphrase and not to kind of put words in their mouth they didn't exactly say that like that but that in part is what I took from it and so yeah that conversation happened um there was Zainab Abbas as I said um interviewed by A.S. Francis and during that conversation um I felt like 
it made me really think about the way I've spoken about uh, historical organisations. Um, I've spoken on here about OAD, I've spoken on here about um, the Brooks and Black Women's Group, on Olive Morris, um, and some of the individuals that are tied to these groups. And it was really interesting to me because the way that I feel like, I'm not going to say I've been taught history or I've been sold history, but when it's written down in a very, you know, there's only there's only so many ways you can you can write these histories and chronologically sometimes is the way and it's very much a case of okay there was this one organization and then it ended and it ended because the people in it couldn't agree on this one thing so they branched out and they made a new one and then they left and they went their separate ways and they hated each other they don't write necessarily write oh they hated each other but it kind of feels like it's implied like you know if you're part of this organization that's doing this one thing um and then you feel like actually no you're not sympathetic to this issue as well or you're taking this in a direction that I don't want to go in and you leave it kind of implies that there potentially could be bad vibes and saying I've just crushed all of that and it was just so important to hear because she was saying that basically when you know she was part of one organization and then she didn't necessarily feel that the politics were moving in the way she wanted to move um they might set up a new organization but if that organization that she was a part of ever needed her or needed them they would be out on the streets, they would be marching, they would be squatting, they would be doing exactly what they needed to do. And we don't often talk about the crossovers. It's very um, kind of static and in boxes of this organisation ran from 1941 to 1948 and that was it. And then it ended on this day. And it never is the case that that's how things end, um, especially when you're talking about like, you know, large groups of people that all have different politics and want to do things in a different way potentially with all the kind of big overarching goals and that being black liberation um so it's really interesting to hear Zainab talk about that and the way that she's kind of as a kind of woman living 2023 and having actually lived through this period of activism that is often spoken about um in scholarship and historically her kind of I guess distance maybe reading and, and listening to those histories having lived it um and it was really interesting to hear from her I think uh it was probably one of my favorite parts of the conference I will say um because yeah she was just so so open um about that time period and about some of the work that was happening uh, at that time and it made me think that I wish activism actual activism uh was done more so like that and I think there are so many lessons we can learn, which I spoke to Hannah Francis uh, in last week's episode about um, intergenerational activism and what we can learn from our elders uh, by way of actually making change in society today. And we also had a panel on public historians and curators, and we looked at some of the work that was being done outside of academia by way of podcasts, exhibitions, uh, projects with nature and gardening that all kind of centre um, histories of black people. Uh, in Britain and also in a transnational context, uh, in the case of Wayland Mackenzie Whittersworth, who looks at America and uh, some of the movements uh, in the States uh, through podcasting, uh, shout out to him, and also Susan Pitter and Elizabeth Cooper, who work a little bit more within institutions, um, doing kind of exhibitions for the public, for school children, um, and for uh, the wider communities that they are trying to serve within their work. And that was really interesting as well. Everything was interesting. It's a redundant statement at this point, um, because... It's kind of easy, I guess, um, to getting caught up in, in what's been written for academia. And unfortunately, I'd still say, and, you know, not necessarily this is a bad thing. It just kind of is what it is. 
a lot of the histories written in academia are written for academia and they aren't that accessible to the general public. I say that's not necessarily a bad thing in itself. Um, it is a bad thing because I think it is normally the case that these texts are really expensive behind paywalls, even though they're literally online and accessible by PDF. They are very expensive and you need the subscriptions or you need to be in an institution to access them. That's a problem. Um, it's also a problem that a lot of the time um, scholars can be writing about communities that then can't access the work that's been written about them. Um, and it's a bit of an exploitative practice, I would say, um, to be just taken and taken and extracting, extracting knowledge and extracting these stories and these truths um, and then locking them up behind the paywall. And then you kind of have to ask the question of like, well, who benefits then if that's the way history is being written um, in an inaccessible way? So these people are kind of, you know, actually working within the public realm to present these histories to people uh, everyday people shall we say in accessible ways um and i guess that's what this podcast has always aimed to do as well um but i found it very interesting um of the kind of pushback that was mentioned um the pushback from institutions that often kind of say they want to do this work and they really want to um you know include these diverse histories and de decolonize their spaces but realistically are kind of only paying lip service and want to give you the little tiny corner of the exhibition space to throw in a few black people and call it a day um again paraphrasing um nobody actually said exactly that um i don't put words in anybody's mouth but that's what i took from it um we also had, you know, papers that weren't necessarily from historians. So looking at the peripheries of, of Black British history, you know, exploring education and then immigration policy and politics and the arts and the media. And that was a really cool panel as well. Um, but we also had a streaming of Empire Road. And I'm not going to say too much about it because I told you I'm inviting people on this podcast and one of the people, well, two of the people I would like to invite um, I've said it to them, so this won't come as a shock to them, I hope, um, is Craig Riley, who is the nephew of Michael Abensetz, who wrote Empire Road, um, which was, I think, the first um, black kind of written and um, mostly pro not produced, sorry, Peter Ansel produced it, um, acted out, the cast and the crew um, were kind of mostly majority black, and it was the first uh, drama of its type to be commissioned by the BBC, um, making Michael Abensetz, um the first writer, especially from Caribbean descent, to be commissioned um, for a TV show by the BBC. And um, also Dr Michelle Yasantewa, who was also part of the kind of project that was working to kind of bring forth the legacy of Michael Abensetz. He has unfortunately passed away um, and there was a blue plaque, a Nubian Jack plaque put up for him in 2023 July, so earlier this year. Um, and the family are doing the work to kind of create, um, I think more kind of public knowledge of his work, which I think is really important because he did really, really important work. And I think the way we then are able to engage with things like TV shows and, and see what representation of black people on TV look like and what that says about society at the time and some of the issues, problems or constraints um, with having, you know, TV shows that actually saw black life being portrayed in a more accurate and, and sensitive way as well. Um, so that was kind of how we closed the conference. We watched episodes with thanks to the BFI, the British Film Institute, where uh, Empire Road is archived. Um, I think they have, um, yeah, a place where you can watch 
and listen to, I think it's called a sound archive. Yes, Diana, it's called a sound archive. Um, there's a specific name for the one at the BFI, though, that's it's outside of my head right now. Um, but you can go there and listen and watch things um, that have been, I believe published uh within britain but that's probably very broad it's probably a little bit more specific and um yeah than that and that kind of rounded up uh two days of conference um and i think thinking about those two days and how nice it was to be around people that also uh did work on on black british histories and cared about it and were interested in it even if it wasn't their own kind of specific day-to-day uh work um it was really really nice and i think as you kind of think ahead to Black History Month, where oftentimes it can be very tokenistic um, and problematic the way that these histories are kind of pimped out for October and then just shoved back into their little hidey holes. Um, where for the majority of us, um, you know, we do this work year round and it is no more or less important in October than any other point in the year. Um, and so I think if you are listening to this podcast and you are thinking about doing something for Black History Month, please just just think about what you're doing. Um, and I say that with the most respect to you or your plans. But, you know, think about, does this event have to take place in October? Maybe it does, because maybe it's the only time you're being funded for it. And that's part of the problem. Um, does this work, you know, is it something that can happen in other parts of the year? And if it can't, then why not? Uh, why can't you do the thing you want to do during other parts of the year outside of funding? You know, a lot of people worry about, you know, there'll be no interest after October. And I find that so sad. Um, and I don't expect everybody to be interested in Black British history every single day of every single year of every single month. Um, but the fact that it's kind of reserved and pushed aside into October um, is is extremely problematic and really ties into this commercialised idea of the of history and the way we take it in. Um, if we have, you know, one month for black histories, another month for queer histories and another month for this and that. And we tick this tick this, this box in the workplace and, you know, we cover this thing in this correct time period. Um, I just think it, it further uh, adds to the commercialisation of, of these histories. And I don't think that's the, the best way to, to take them in and to think about uh, black history, because... As we know, and as much as black history is actually just interesting and history is just interesting, um, there is also a political element to history. We would be naive to argue that um, in this country at this present moment in time, black history doesn't feed into narratives on anti-racism. It doesn't feed into work about uh, equality um, and, uh, you know, kind of helping marginalised people and especially children see themselves in history you know we've spoken about all those things on the podcast before but the fact that you know whilst we know all this to be true in 2023 in today's context the fact that we then still cram it all into October um is a little bit um insidious I didn't want to use the word problematic again even though that's exactly what it is um it is extremely taxing I'm going to use the word taxing um at certain times to kind of see history kind of I guess shoved into boxes in this way but I'm gonna leave it there I think I've said enough um episodes where I actually do some research and talk to you about a historical event moment person individual or theme all resume next week but with the conference and everything I figured it might be best place me to actually talk about it uh, to reflect on it a little bit this episode's been a bit like a little oral diary like an audio diary 
Um, thank you for, for humouring me if you've made it this far. Um, I hope you have a wonderful week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.